Welcome back to Hope Solo Speaks. I'm your host, Hope Solo. It is a fascinating moment for the WNBA, and perhaps if examined closely, the WNBA can serve as an operating model for other leagues, as opposed to being looked at as the NBA's little sister. It is the oldest professional women's basketball league in the world, but it still has potential for much more growth, especially when it comes to things like travel, roster sizes, and salary caps. With the excitement of February and free agency and the offseason resulting in two super teams, it's a great time to check in with a woman who has done it all. She has been featured on many ESPN premiere shows in the WNBA space and serves as ESPN WNBA reporter. She is the analyst for hoop streams and college basketball shows and is co-host of ESPN's YouTube show Around the Rim. Most recently, Tarika made sports history as she was one of the first women to ever serve as broadcaster for the historical CIAA tournament in its 70-plus year existence. She is a women's basketball influencer who has, like I said, done it all. There is nobody better to check in with when it comes to women's basketball in America. Please welcome Tarika Foster Brasby. Tarika, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hope Solo Speaks. I mean, you know, I I figured it was a really good time to kind of check in on the state of the WNBA and women's basketball in our country. Yes, it is the perfect time. Um, there's so much that has been going on. This year's free agency uh, period is still technically open and it has been spicy. So oh, well, I want to talk about that. But before we get into the yes. free agency, I want to just talk about kind of the overall picture of the league and and the viability of the league right now and, and where you've seen it um, grow in the past three to five years, I guess. Wow. Honestly, um, on various different levels, um, have we been able to really see the growth of this league from coverage where, you know, we were only seeing several games a year. Now we can pretty much count on seeing games on some main mainstream networks. Um, the games are being aired on social media, on Twitter and Facebook. Um, the games have uh, the league has a partnership with Amazon now. So there are so many different places that you can find women's basketball that you didn't a few years ago. Um, so I love that um, the parody of the league has changed the talent. Um, of the the product on the floor. There's just been so many talented young women um, coming into this league and players from uh, overseas that have joined the WNBA to bring their talents. It really has been amazing. And then from a coverage standpoint, just to see the amount of people who are now writing about the league and starting shows and podcasts. And um, this is just everything that's going to help make this game grow. And, And you just love to see it. Now, is the WNBA considered the best women's professional basketball league in the world? If you're asking me that, (laughs) I mean, I don't want to sound biased or anything, but absolutely it it really is the best in the longest running um longest professional women's basketball league um in in our country for sure but most definitely i mean when you talk about people growing up i mean i don't i know women i know we're not really supposed to like tell our age or anything but i have no problem saying that i i'm 38 years old and for me i remember a time growing up where i didn't see um 
an opportunity for women to play basketball at this level here in the United States. Everyone was either playing for a USA basketball yeah. or having to go overseas to have a career or pretty much your career was done after college. So around 12 or 13 is when the league started. And for me, it really opened up a door. Um, so to be able to now have children who have never grown up knowing that there hasn't been a WNBA or a professional women's basketball league is really reassuring for our future and for the future. Yeah. Absolutely. We're moving forward, onward and upward. And yes. it's expected now. You know, we're not looking back in the past. It's expected. Yeah. And speaking about the past, however, um, well, I know there's been significant momentum building, as you said, um, especially in the past few years. Right now, there are 12 teams. The mm -hmm. league launched with eight franchises back in 1997. Mm -hmm. I am wondering when uh, is the next expected expansion? That's a great question. It's a question that we've been asking Commissioner Kathy Engelbert forever. Like, what's next? What's coming next? There's been a lot of speculation, right? Like, um, there's a, a group that wants a team in Oakland, California. Oh, there's yeah. a there's a group that's uh, petitioning for a team in Portland. Um, we've heard rumors about Philadelphia. And this year, they are playing their first international WNBA basketball game in Toronto, Canada in May. So I can't wait to see them play in Europe, though. I know. Right. So that's like, seriously, that is probably the next step into moving across the seas. But I just love the fact that, you know, now you know, there's an NBA team in, in Toronto and a possibility of a WNBA team there, too. It's just really exciting. So a lot has gone on, as you said, in this offseason, but it has also resulted in two super teams, uh, one in Las Vegas, one in New York, great markets. Mm -hmm. uh, does having two super teams in these big media markets, does it does it help or does it hurt? Definitely helps. Certainly doesn't hurt. There's no you can't get enough uh the excitement and the conversation around the WNBA, you, you kind of need that, right? Um, and I think that each of those individual teams have brought about so all sorts of questions and um, all sorts of, of storylines on their own. I mean, when you look at New York, it's, I mean, it's New York, right? Like that's the, no matter where you're from, you know, or have heard or have dreamed about being in New York. And so having the opportunity to play there. And as you mentioned in 1997, when this league was formed, the Liberty was one of the original teams, but that team has never won a championship, right? And so um, having the ability to have former MVPs, two-time champions, um, it, well, actually several uh, champions on that team now, it really brings a lot of excitement to uh, a city and a market that has never really had anything to be this excited about when it comes to this team. And then on the other end, you look at Las Vegas, Las Vegas is, seems like an overnight powerhouse, right? It was a, <laughs> They moved there several years ago. And ever since then, you can't stop talking about, you know, this could be the year for Vegas. This could be the year for Vegas. And last year, it was that year the for Vegas. Champions. Yes, right? So mm -hmm. WNBA champions, and you're thinking to yourself, there's no way this team could get any better. Oh, wait, let's just add Candace Parker. <laughs> well, I do want to talk about Candace Parker. I was looking at, I was looking at, uh, you know, I'm really trying to understand uh, the WNBA, obviously coming from three different professional leagues in the United States when it came to soccer. So mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of the struggles, a lot of the challenges that 
uh, these newer leagues have to overcome. Like you said, this is not a new league anymore. Mm-hmm. So you guys are going through glass ceilings right now and it's a really, really exciting time. So I was, I was going through the salary caps and help me understand this if, if you will. Um, or maybe you can walk us through the salary caps for the team. Yeah. So, so every team, so there's a, there's different teams have different cap levels, which is very similar, I think, to, to various different sports. And, um, with the new CBA that was just created in 2020, the year of the pandemic, um, which in itself was very interesting. It was a it was a groundbreaking um, CBA for this league because the cap increased um, and it came with certain provisions that the WNBA players had never been given before. Some of those provisions included um, extensions on healthcare, um, provisions for um, players who um, become pregnant and have to either leave the season or unable to play play a full season because of it. Um, Mental health benefits were also included in the CBA. Um, So there were a lot of um, a lot of things that were given in 2020 um, that really put the WNBA in a different and much better position. Well, at this point now, um, there's the max deal where players can only have a certain amount, like veteran players. Um, You have the ability to core a player, which is to basically say, hey, we want to Play, we want you to play here for another year at this particular amount. And then come next year during free agency, you'll be able to test the waters and do whatever. But this is, you know, very similar to in football. They say we're putting the franchise tag on you. Okay. Right. So yeah. coring a player is very similar to that. Um, and so different the, while the salary cap is the same for all 12 teams, obviously different teams have different money to play with and to work around. And so most recently, um, there has been a little controversy um, because um, some, a little controversy because some um, some people are accusing certain teams of circumventing the salary cap by having partners, third-party companies, and other brands um, basically pay players off of other ventures and not necessarily tying that against the salary cap. So if I play for the Detroit Stars, completely making this team up, if I play for the Detroit Stars and the team only has $100,000 in salary cap for me, then the team can say, hey, this is, you know, the amount that we're going to be able to offer you per contract is $100,000. However, you know, we might have an opportunity for you to make a little money on the side through our notebook company where, you know, you show up at a couple of events and the company will pay you $300,000. Now is $300,000 literally the equivalent of showing up at a couple of events for a notebook company? Absolutely not. But what it does do is give them an opportunity to add an incentive um, to your contract that goes around the salary cap. So, well, we know organizations and companies and, you know, businessmen and women, we like to find ways to go around the red tape. So this isn't anything different. This isn't anything new. We saw this back at the start of the NWSL when we all had to have the exact same contracts, which I never believed in a star playing player having the same exact contract as somebody who's a bench player. So I never believed in that in terms of equity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fighting for really um, being the best of the best. You should be paid more. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so when we set out to 
make that CBA as part of the NWSL, I was so upset. Mm. Why am I making 40,000 like everybody else who's not marketable one, who maybe doesn't play as much, you know, doesn't get any playing time, isn't on the national team. So there were a lot of downfalls to having everything set equally. But what we did see is players didn't want to play in certain markets. So then you saw these third-party companies, third-party payouts come to the table. Mm -hmm. And so we likened it to, well, hey, this is my name, image, and likeness, or it's a marketing deal for me. Why, Why should the league not allow me to make money on the side? So it is a slippery slope because it is, they're paying for your name, they're paying for you to maybe show up at a couple of events. Perhaps it's not equivalent to 300000 So that must be looked into. But it still is almost a marketing contract. I actually can understand that point. And I feel like that's a very fair and valid point to make. And it's very similar in the WNBA where there are all these questions as to, you know, when the next time there is a CBA adjustment, can the salary cap be adjusted? There are, you know, there have been conversations and even um, some even, you know, rumors that, you know, there are certain owners and managers who don't want to pay certain players for certain things. And there have been owners who have come out against those rumors and said, no, that's not the case, that all all owners don't want to, you know, be stuck to a certain salary cap and want to be able to play play fit, play players um, equitably. But I think that is also part of the part that, you know, if I am someone and I'm going to use Las Vegas as an example, just because it's the first one that comes to mind. But if I'm an owner like Mark Davis, for example, that has the ability to have so many other interests attached to my name and my ability um, to do some things that maybe some other owners can't do or some other owners won't do, um, then my players are benefiting, or at least the idea is that certain players who play for this particular owner will benefit from certain things. And it has nothing to do with necessarily, you know, your name or your likeness, but everything to do with wanting to stack the deck for your team to ensure that you can bring in the best players, regardless of how much that may cost. Um, And I think that's where the lines may be blurred a little bit, because as much as we want to see super teams and as much as we want to see the best players play on the most fun teams, we want to see this across the WNBA and not just necessarily with those who have the bigger interest that can find ways to circumvent the CBA. But again, this is all speculation and the WNBA is currently looking into the allegations that have been made about people or teams that have been trying to circumvent the salary cap. So uh, the claims that I read were against defending champions, Las Vegas Aces. Um uh, being accused of under the table payments. And I, I just don't think it's that rare in sport, honestly. Um, but you're right. It, it's, it's solidifying the CBA, um, putting teams. I just don't think anything in life is really fair. You, you know, you're going to have benefits if you play for a certain organization or a certain ownership group, and that's in every sport that you look at. Um, but so right now it is all over the news. Um, but I have known plenty of athletes who have had under the table payments, but this, this is the problem when it comes to, you know, really building a viable women's league. Uh, you have to iron out the rules. We don't have the history to stand back on. We're trying to mirror ourselves against, uh, successful men's leagues, whether it's the NFL or the NBA, but we don't have ownership groups with deep, deep enough pockets. So it kind of goes back to 
we need better ownership groups. We need ownership groups with deeper pockets. And we have to set out to look for that. We can't lower the bar. And this is what we saw again in the NWSL where ownership groups just didn't have enough money, you know, and U.S. soccer accepted ownership groups that were millionaires and not billionaires. And we needed more. So, you know, I think right now the WNBA is in such an exciting place because you are getting better ownership groups. You are getting deeper pockets. Uh, you're being broadcast all over the place, all over ESPN. And people are really, I wanted to talk to you about the the viewership. How is the viewership going? Oh, the viewership, you know, someone in some great movie a long time ago said, if you build it, they will come, right? And nothing could be more true when it comes to women's sports in general. The biggest issue that we face in, in, in our business is that people can't learn to love what they can't see. People can't learn to identify and relate to players if they never get a chance to hear about them, learn about them, see them, um, find out that they love them, right? And I, what we noticed over this year is what we've in in the industry have been saying for years. You know, if you put the games on a channel that people are going to be able to watch at a time that people are going to be able to watch it, people might actually like it. Um, and we've seen viewership numbers in the WNBA increase last year, last season. Um, the first game of the playoffs actually started on the same day as the NFL opening weekend. And what, let me rephrase, not the first day of the playoffs, let me rephrase, the first game of the WNBA finals started oh on the same day as the opening Sunday for NFL. And we were freaking out. Like we were like, I was like, listen, I don't know how we're supposed to say, you know, how do we justify this, this, this hat, like there's going to be a conflict. People are, people are definitely going to watch the NFL. Like that's, that's all I kept thinking in my head. People are definitely going to watch the NFL. They're not about to watch us. And to my surprise, it was the highest viewership in WNBA history for game one of a final. Dang. I just so got the chills. Fight, that is incredible. That is, that is fact. So despite the, um, un- I, I won't say unnecessary, but it was an inevitable yeah. um, kind of conflict because the way that the season runs for the WNBA, it's always going to conflict with something. At the beginning of the season, it's going to conflict with mm-hmm. the NBA finals. In the middle of the season, it's going to conflict with baseball. And then at the end of the season, it's going to conflict with NFL. So there's really no way to kind of set itself apart in its own little bucket. It's always going to conflict with something, but it's certainly reassuring to see that on a day where we know majority of Americans watching sports will most likely be watching the NFL, there was still a portion, a large portion of the country who were watching WNBA basketball. And that's got to count for something. That is incredible. That counts for a lot. And what I do like, what I see with the WNBA is uh, you're not stuck marketing this incredible athletic product and skill set to only women. And, mm-hmm. and you don't, you know, you, you open yourself up, you know, you see boy, young boys, young girls at the game, and then you see men and women alike at the games, which I think is absolutely incredible. I don't know why women's sports has to, for so long in the past, market to only girls, you know, because mm-hmm. I think these uh, young boys really look up to women as well. So I think it's really incredible. It's, it's really inclusive. And yeah. you guys are kind of paving the way to show other leagues how it's going to work here in the United States. So it's very commendable. 
Thank you. I, th- I think it's uh, I think you're right. And I'm pretty sure, you know, you had um, young, young boys come up to you and just, you know, tell you how much you've inspired them and how much of a fan they are of you and what you've done. Um, I know that WNBA players feel the same sense of pride and happiness when they are also approached by young boys um, who, you know, have no idea what it's like to not see girls and women play basketball and to feel, you know, like this is, this is normal. And I think that's a place that we really want to get to just with all women's sports. It's just that this is normal. It's not something that's a rarity or an anomaly to see, you know, a girl good at soccer or a girl good at basketball. It's just like, oh yeah, like, yeah, my sister plays, you know, like it's just, it's normal. Um, And I think we're getting there. We still obviously have a long way to go um, in terms of really generating that support that we need. I mean, just check my Twitter account. You can see all of the long way that we have to get everyone to buy in. But um, overall, when you see NBA players supporting the league and you see um, other men athletes supporting the league, showing up in their orange hoodies and, you know, rocking the return of BG um, sweaters and T-shirts when she was, uh, you know, detained over in Russia and seeing them appear, you know, at the games. John Morant was someone who came to like all of the WNBA finals this past season. Just that kind of support, even if there are those who are still wondering or trying to figure out where on the line they fall. I think when they see some of their favorite male athletes also gravitating to the sport, it makes them curious to kind of want to see and check it out for themselves. So long way to go, but gosh, we've also come a long way too. Yeah, we have. And we do have a long way to go because, uh, man, I hate seeing that anymore. I don't want to say it anymore. I just want to be there. You know, I don't want yeah. to have to build it because like you said, we have built it. Now you get your butts out of your seat. Just come. Come. We built yes. it already. We got the skill set. We got the personalities. We got the drama. You got the storylines. You got everything. You got the venues. Um, I wanted to go back to this real quick. So when I was looking through uh, the CBA a little bit, um, it looks like the salary. I don't know if I read this right or I'm understanding this correctly, but it looks like the salary cap for each team is just over 1.4 million per team. Mm -hmm. So, and then the minimum a player in their first two years can get paid is around Mm 62,000. And the minimum that a three-year player and above can get paid is around Mm -hmm. 74,000. So uh, to me and my experience, those are, those are okay numbers um, for, for a minimum, for a minimum, mind you. Mm -hmm. And, there has to be at least 11 players on the roster with a maximum of 12. I wanted to understand that because coming from the soccer world, obviously we push to have as many people as possible on the rosters. Again, we have 11 players that once on the field playing. So how do, uh, how does the players feel about having 11 to 12 players on every roster? A lot of the players that I have spoken to have definitely said that they would love to have roster expansion, but roster expansion would also need to come with the salary cap increase because that would mean that the revenue share would be smaller with more people that are on the roster. Um, there, I don't know of too many leagues that have first round um, lottery picks are sometimes not listed or not you know, able to make an actual roster after they've been drafted because the spots are so, so, so limited. It is truly difficult to make a WNBA roster because of that. Um, And so I know, you know, specifically I've heard from, you know, MVP Asia Wilson 
who plays for the Las Vegas Aces, she has also talked about roster expansion. Um, and sometimes you have players, which is um, kind of tying into a new rule that they um, that the WNBA is implementing um, regarding some players who play overseas, but um, they also allow for certain teams to have hardship contracts. And what these hardship contracts do is allow players to allow teams to bring in players while either a player is out and injured um, or if a player is overseas um, and doesn't allow that team to operate with that 10, um, with that 11 to 12 player um, roster standard. Um, but Roster expansion would eliminate a lot of that. I think it would um, not only eliminate the, the need for a hardship contract, but it would give players who genuinely want and can be better an opportunity to develop on a team um, in real in real time, considering that this league does not have um, like a G League or it doesn't have like a, an amateur kind of equivalent to it where these players who don't make rosters have an opportunity to grow and develop. Um, so roster expansion um, would actually probably help the idea of wanting to expand teams. I think if, you know, you had more people, more depth, um, an opportunity to get more people an opportunity to play, um, then that also opens up the idea of whenever there is necessarily um, an opportunity for the league to grow to other cities, there's an expansion draft and you have experienced players to choose from in order to, to fill those rosters in those new locations. Um, so yeah, it makes, it makes total sense to, to increase it, but again, an increase in roster spots needs an increase in money. And when you were talking about increasing money, that's where, that's where we get all the issues. Well, I have good news for you here in a second, but I, how many players would be on an NBA roster? What, what, what is probably like the. Well, to be, to be honest, I want to say you might have like 14, 15. Yeah. 15 I don't think roster. it's extraordinary. Yeah. Okay. Um, but here's the good news. So recently Seattle storm owners valued their franchise at a league record for 151 million, which is amazing for any investors out there. So all you investors who are listening, get out and get yourself a, a new franchise in expansion, which will probably take place in two years. But yeah. by comparison to show everybody out there, how incredible these franchises and these teams are doing mm -hmm. 151 million. That's what Seattle Storm is valued at. In comparison, in 2019, what is that? So four years, in four, four years, years ago. Um, New York Liberty was sold for between 10 to 14 million. In 2021, Las Vegas was purchased for just over 2 million. That's around the salary cap. Wow. So that's what I'm saying. This is an incredible investment. And it you can incredible. see within the last five years how much the investment has really given back to, to the investors. That not only does that make a ton of sense, but here's another misconception that a lot of people have. Um, they have there's this misconception that all of the teams are owned or operated by their NBA counterpart. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that. <laughs> and that's because I don't understand it. <laughs> does, it, does the WNBA need the NBA? I don't I don't think that that's a question that can be easily answered in a yes or no. Um, but what I can say is that all of the WNBA teams are not owned and operated by their NBA counterparts. There are some WNBA teams that have a great relationship and are owned by their their NBA counterpart example. Um 
Matt Ashia just purchased the uh, Phoenix Suns and Phoenix Mercury. Um, the ownership group in Minnesota, for example, um, share both the Timberwolves and the uh, Minnesota Lynx. Um, they, they often share facilities. They often um, have some of the greatest facilities, to be honest. They're really nice. Um, but you also have teams that are owned by ownership groups like the Atlanta Dream, for example, who is owned by our ownership group that has a former player, Renee Montgomery, who was a part of that ownership group. Um, and then you have um, or another example of NBA, um, NBA, WNBA connection is Joe Sy in Brooklyn, who owns the Nets as well as the Liberty. Um, but then again, you have, you know, players, uh, teams that are owned, like, for example, the Connecticut Sun are owned by the Mohegan tribe. So it is it is absolutely not all owned and operated by the NBA. The Connecticut Sun is a team that doesn't there is no NBA team in Connecticut. Um, so to kind of say, does the WNBA need the NBA? Well, I mean, how how is that particularly a need when there is not even a counterpart for them to lean on, right? So um, it's a very open-ended question because I do think there is still relatively um, some absolute connections that they have to the NBA that is important and that is relevant. Their relationship with the commissioner, Adam Silver, is relevant and it's important. Um, the, the business savvy between those WNBA and NBA ownership groups is important. Um, and I think that the marketing and the, the um, mimicking or at least attempting to mimic the financial structure is important. So I do believe that relationship needs to be there. But what I don't think people need to continue to do is to say that the WNBA will just completely die and falter if the NBA is not involved. Because um, I just don't think that that's the case. And even beyond that, if it's looked at as this business investment and you look what the Portland Thorns have done with the mm -hmm. MLS and the NWSL team in Portland, Oregon, both can profit. So actually more money can come in to the NBA owners mm -hmm. and the ownership groups. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you really look at it, it's putting the time, the effort, the marketing, putting the front office together, getting the television deals, and mm -hmm. then maximizing profits on, on both sides. Absolutely. Maximizing your dollars. That's really what it can be. But and I think, I think we're soon there. And, and if you got these smart NBA owners and they will see that they can make money off of this incredible talent and, and product that they do have. But no, you're right. I don't think, the WNBA needs the NBA by any means, um, but that is the structure kind of put in place right now. I know that with the NWSL, it's moving towards the expansion teams having to be an ML MLS ownership group. Mm -hmm. So it is going entirely that way, but that's because they see the investment in it because it never started out that way. They never wanted to get behind women's football at the very beginning. You know, it's 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 interesting to me that I love seeing a lot of these different ownership groups and some of them, you know, again, I can't confirm, but we've heard NBA players say that at some point they would love to be a part of an investment group that would be behind a WNBA team. And I think that would be great, to be honest. Well, look at the numbers. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's it's worth it. It's and and I think that it's always I always believe that having someone a part of leadership and executive making decisions 
who have been there, who understand it, who knows it. Like those are the kinds of people that honestly help to make things not only run more efficiently, but you build the relationships. You totally get the inside and outside perspectives. Um, and, and I think that just makes the product so much better. And I personally, it's one of the reasons why I loved Renee Montgomery jumping on board and becoming an owner in Atlanta. You, no one can tell you, you know, more about a league that you spent your time in, that you, you know, that you've grown to know and love and you've played in. And so you can offer perspectives to help in a way that others can't. Um, so I love seeing that, but you're, you're a hundred percent correct where it's just about the investment really. Like you have to take the risk because it's not really a risk at all anymore. Yeah. Um, okay. So onto the court. I know it's off season, but February has proven to be very, very busy uh, with free agency, as you said. So Brianna Stewart announced that she would sign with New York. Yeah. Uh, Candace Parker announced that she'd sign with reigning champs, Las Vegas. Um, man, she's an icon. She's an icon. And that I saw that she signed for a hundred thousand dollar contract. And she took less, like she took less yeah so the top 10 players are getting paid between 200 and 250 thousand dollars per season and then you got my girl candace taking a hundred thousand she took less brianna uh, brianna stewart took less courtney vandersloot took less like a lot of players have made adjustments and have taken less than what they could um just because they you know understand the nature of the league they have reasons for wanting to play where they want to play um, and they're willing to do that. And then, you know, to be fair too, some of them have played overseas for a while. And so they've been able to, you know, make money playing in a, overseas. And so, you know, the money for them isn't the biggest issue. It may be winning a championship or, you know, may just wanting to be a leader on a, on a team that is full of young players. I mean, everyone has their different reasonings, but it is, you know, when you think about it, it is kind of crazy that you've got some of the star players who could be making so much more than they are, but they're willing to take the minimum just, you know, to do what needs to be done. Of course. So tell me else what, what, what have I been missing? What's been going on in free agency? Tell us some of the new and exciting players to look out for. Absolutely. Um, I think if you guys have not heard of the name Aaliyah Boston, then you might want to look her up. Um, she is playing right now at South Carolina under head coach Don Staley, but they're the number one team in the country. Um, and she is projected to be the number one draft pick in April. So um, whoever lands her, um, I think uh, Indiana is leading the draft lottery or, or, or got the biggest votes in the draft lottery. But um, in either case, she's going to be a phenomenal player that we should definitely look forward to this uh, coming up season. I can't wait to see how her game translates from college to um, to the WNBA. Um, a lot of player movement outside of the, you know, Brianna Stewart's. John Quill Jones is someone who also um, made the move to New York. She was a, a big factor in the success in Connecticut. And so it's going to be very interesting to see her in a new uniform and see how well she plays alongside two other stars. Um, so that's going to be fun. Um, and then let's not forget about Los Angeles. Los Angeles, 
Um, they are, again, a franchise that was one of the original franchises in the league. Um, they are so closely associated. When you think of L.A., you think of the Lakers, you think of all these great championships. They've got championships in L.A., Lisa Leslie, the history of the Sparks. And so when they aren't playing well, you kind of feel like something is missing. And they haven't played well over the last couple of years. But this year in the offseason, they've done a great job with bringing some stars to their uh, to their roster. Um, De'Erica Hamby, who used to play for um, the Las Vegas Aces, is now there. Uh, Jasmine Thomas, who was a point guard for Connecticut, is now there. They have a new head coach in Kurt Miller. They re-signed some players. Chene Agumake and Neka Agumake, who's a star, is still there. And so um, you've got to be excited about what Los Angeles could potentially do because they certainly went from a team that was kind of, to a team where you're like, well, hey, let's, I might have to catch some Sparks games this year. <laughs> Do we get your prediction or are you staying mum? I am, I am <laughs> so, like, I have no idea. Okay, it's a little early. <laughs> it is so early. I have absolutely no idea, but I think come May, I may be ready to throw some things out there. Okay. Where do you live? I live in Connecticut, in Hartford, Connecticut. Mm, you're going to be an East Coast team. I know that. Okay, talk to me about my Seattle team. No more Sue Bird, icon, obviously not just for the team and the WNBA, but for my state, my city of Seattle. Um, I'm sure there's many players who will step in. Well, I will say this, Sue Bird, God bless her. Love Sue Bird. Every encounter with Sue has been amazing. Um, So I know that she isn't really thinking about her retirement plans as of now, but we've been trying to throw bugs in her ear, like coaching, coaching. <laughs> She's not listening to us right now, but we're going to keep throwing it out there. Um, so, um, but I think Seattle is certainly a team that's going to be looking for a new identity. They still have Jewel Lloyd. And if you still have Jewel Lloyd, you, you still got a lot to work with that, that player is one that any team would love to have. So all hope is certainly not lost with Jewel. Um, they've made some moves in free agency to bring some big pieces in the backcourt. Um, so that's going to be exciting to see. But you know what? I just think that anyone who's a supporter of the Seattle Storm is going to really have to learn to adjust because two of the major players who really have identified with this team for years um, are no longer there. And that's sometimes very difficult for, for fans to, you know, for fans to just wait and for fans to, to, to kind of come to grips with, but you guys will be just fine. Hey, we had to come to grips with not having the Seattle supersonics. See what I'm saying? So, like you will be just fine. You know, still, it still hurts pretty then, deeply. I get it. I get it. I remember when Lauren Jackson left initially mm-hmm. and everyone was like, oh my God, what are we going to do? You guys will be, Seattle will be fine. They always are. All right. I, I'm coming back around. Come back to me if it's not uh, true. Right? You know, I'm betting for Seattle then. So we'll do a of personal course. bet. Of course. Prior to of the course. season. Um, so you got to talk to me about uh, a little more controversy real quick. 2021 New York Liberty. Uh, we're fine. $500,000 for chartering flights. What's up with that? We can't charter flights. You know what? Like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, I don't, I don't get it. What's wrong? What's wrong with wanting to have some comfort when you're traveling, right? So, if you got the money, if you if got you the got endorsement, the somebody willing to do it, how come the league says no? I mean, is it really an unfair advantage? 
it is it is to- in my personal opinion it's totally not an unfair advantage it was it's an unfair advantage to have to fly commercial to turn it down <laughs> and turn, right like that's an unfair advantage but um i there are a lot of players right now Brianna Stewart's one of them um who is leading the charge on saying we need to make this happen. And I know the league is talking about money, about how much money it would cost in the millions of dollars to have charter flights. And, you know, they've made some arrangements in a postseason where you can charter flights if you, you know, have a certain amount of games in between during the finals and semifinals and stuff like that. But the reality is, is they need to make some adjustments to that CBA come 2027. If your ownership- 2027, whoo. If your ownership group can afford, you know, if you if you can afford to get a charter, like why, like you know, why y'all are why are y'all in those people's pockets? Let them pay for what they want to pay for. Yeah, it's just that, yeah, it's just yeah that that, that one bothered me quite a bit. But I will um, say this year, though, it's going to really be a hot topic because um, a point has been made that um Brittany Griner may need some additional security or there may need to be some provisions made for her um just because you don't know how people are going to react with her being in an airport or if her life could be at risk for people who feel some type of way about what everything that happened for her so this is a situation the league is going to have to tackle a lot sooner than later it seems like it's all coming to a head absolutely um mm-hmm. you talked about not really having a feeder league to to uh, help develop more players to play in the WNBA to get them ready for the WNBA. Um, but I did see, I wouldn't call it a partnership, but AU basketball, which stands for athletes unlimited. Um, I I don't know entirely what's going on, but it's helping NBA WNBA players actually stay stateside during the off season to play. Can you tell us more about it? Absolutely. So athletes unlimited is a, um, it's an amateur player, first player driven, league. Um, and I don't want to say amateur in that way because there are WNBA players who play. Um, but it's, it's not a, um, it's not like a WNBA G league or, you know, or something like that. Um, but what it is though, is it is absolutely a league that, um, again, is driven and led by players. Um, the players literally came up with this, um, as a way to help, um, WNBA players, um, and other basketball players, um, who, you know, try out and make the teams so that you can make money here stateside and not have to continually go overseas in the off season to make money. Um, the, the, the league is driven on um, a point value system. So players get points for certain things that they do in a game. And then your team also gets points for, um, you know, wins, losses, and, you know, uh, things of that nature. So that at the very end of the season, um, it's not necessarily that a team wins the AU season, it's the player and players make money based off things that they do. So, you wow, know, that you sounds know, fun. Players make money make off of every week, huh. every week, they, every week throughout the season, they host a draft. And so a player could be, you know, your opponent today and be your teammate tomorrow. So it kind of builds this camaraderie between people because you certainly don't want to, you know, be mean or rude or insensitive to someone who could very well be your teammate the very next week. So there's that. Um, but it's a lot of fun. It's usually about six weeks. It's starting very soon. I believe the 19th is when the first draft is going to be held and the championship is at the end of March. Um, it's going to be in Dallas, Texas this year. And last year was the first inaugural season for AU, AU Pro Hoops. But um, what it did was it opened the doors for 
some WNBA players who were injured. It gave them an opportunity to kind of train and get in shape before the season. Um, it also brought some attention to some players who were not in the WNBA. So coaches come out to this league and watch them play. And they have offered opportunities to players to join the team or at least come to a tryout um, and try to earn a spot on some WNBA teams last year. It was really great to see. Um, this year, there are way more WNBA players who have joined this league and other players from um, internationally who have come over to join this league. So um, it's going to be a lot, a lot of fun. I'm excited. 44 players. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a fantasy shortened league. Yeah. Um, But it's being aired all over the place. I saw. Yes. Yes. So it's yes, for the yes. fans as well to kind of mm-hmm. keep track of their players during the off season. Mm-hmm. They do. They're, they're um, airing on YouTube, on Valley Sports. They just entered a partnership with the WNBA. So now you can catch AU games in the WNBA app yeah. on the for free. So like it's like 24-7 basketball now all year long. Does this help? I mean, it does help, I assume, keep players stateside as opposed to going overseas to make more money. Um do players have the option? Can they do anything they want in the off season? Can they go overseas? Can they stay stateside? Players do have the options to choose. Like there's nothing that forces a player to go overseas to play basketball. It's it's really your and the WNBA uh, doesn't force them or pressure them to stay. No, the WNBA from I you know Kathy Engelbert has said on multiple occasions that she would love to offer or find a way to offer more opportunities for players to be able to make money and earn a living here and not have to go overseas. Um, What that opportunity is, I do not know. (laughs) However, um, it would be great to have it. We would love for our players to get a true offseason um, and not have to literally play basketball all year long. Unfortunately, a lot of players just aren't in a position to make that decision. Well, you heard it here from Tarika herself. The 2024 champions for the WNBA will be Seattle. Uh, Just kidding. Just kidding. You didn't didn't necessarily say that, but um, I'm very excited to be more tuned in this season than I ever have in the past. Um, I did used to attend the Seattle Storm Games. I've been to a number, um, even with my father, my late father. So um, it is near and dear to the heart. But, you know, kids running around, there's so many sports, you're being pulled in a number of different directions. And I am committed this season to really tuning in because I'm excited for what you guys are doing. It's a very fascinating moment right now for the WNBA. Um, So thank you for sharing it with all the listeners today. And thank you for being here today, Trika. Thank you so much. I truly enjoyed. I'm glad to know that we've got a fan in you, Hope. So yeah, thank you so much. Hope Solo Sphinx is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. SiriusXM Podcasts.